Well, I tell you, we have the best worship team anywhere. I mean, it's just wonderful. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's, and and they, they weren't even all here. Uh, I'm especially fond of the keyboard player and the cajon player, which are my son and daughter, but uh, they're all great, really, really good, and appreciate you always really helping us focus our thoughts. You know, Jeff and I talk a lot about a lot of things, but uh, one of the things that's important to us is that we all realize that worship is not just the singing, that the whole service is worship, and indeed, according to Romans 12, our whole lives are acts of worship. So music is just one way to express our love for the Lord and to kind of collectively unite our hearts together as we think about the things of His Word, but uh, but it's uh, it's my favorite. It's my second favorite part of the service every week. <laughs> We're about to start my favorite. So um, uh, it's been a while since we visited the book of Hebrews. You know, we've been uh, studying Hebrews since I first started a year ago, and the series, of course, is called "Trusting God in, in Trying Times: Unshakable Faith." And because of all of our exciting activities that we've had the last month. We've sort of taken a break, but we're kind of winding up this series. I've got two more messages this week and next week. And because it's been a little bit of a while uh, since we've been in Hebrews, I want to take a moment to just recontextualize it and make sure we kind of understand the setting. Of course, uh, Hebrews uh, is written by an unknown human author. You know, the Bible, God's Word, was written by 40 different human authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages. You come to the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, Hebrews was anonymous. We don't officially know who wrote it. I've suggested, as have many others, that the Apostle Paul is probably the most likely candidate, but we can't be dogmatic about that. But it was written in the late 60s A.D., roughly 67, maybe 68. If Paul wrote it, it had to be early 68 because he was martyred in the spring of 68. But it could have been as late as 69 A.D. And that was during a historical time when the early church was about 30 years old, give or take. And uh, the Roman Emperor Nero was going uh, absolutely crazy and really uh, turning up the heat on Christians as they begin to, to spread and to uh, have conflicts with the old uh, state of, of Judaism, which was sort of in cahoots with the Roman state, and uh, the, 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 the Pax Romana was being upset, and the Christians were the scapegoats, and so Nero was uh, burning them at the stake, uh, ransacking their homes, and arresting them, and so forth. And it's in that context that the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes a letter to encourage those first century believers to hang on to the faith. Uh, that your faith has great reward, even if you pay the ultimate price. There's no reason to abandon Christianity. Many believers in that day uh, were abandoning their association with other believers. That's the reason Hebrews 10.25 that we looked at some time ago talks about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Many of them, because of the external pressures and the threats of violence and so forth, were sort of distancing themselves from the way, Christianity, and instead associating only with Judaism, which was still under uh, sort of the protection of Rome. And we've talked a lot about how those that did so, though it's not good, and there's, there's certainly consequences for that, it has no bearing on their eternal destiny. Uh, our salvation is secure the moment we place our faith in Christ. And who among us can say, if faced with similar uh, situations, we might not uh, do the same thing. I hope, and I know you do too, that if someone puts a gun to my head and says, deny the Lord, I would say, uh, like, uh, and by the way, I was talking to a former uh, law enforcement person before or during the break, I think it was, about uh, the events of Columbine, and it reminded me as I'm thinking about it of that one 
a Christian young person who said, Jesus is my Lord, right? And I would hope that we would do the same thing when faced with that persecution. But thankfully, our eternal destiny is not dependent upon our ability to, to perform or do good works or, or uh, withstand the pressure. It's a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ who died and rose again for our sins. And more than 160 times the New Testament alone conditions our eternal life simply upon faith. When we trust in Christ, he says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. But nevertheless, there was... Uh, a lot of practical consequences of those who would abandon the faith and uh, certainly the, the issue of rewards in the kingdom and things like that. So the writer is saying, look, uh, follow the example of those who've gone before us who under great persecution were steadfast in the faith and don't abandon the faith. And so we left off last time in chapter 13 with a message on the power of God's presence. And I don't know about you, but that message really... The principles that we discussed from that passage really impacted me, and it just reminded me uh, that God is with us. And if you've not uh, watched that message, if you weren't here or, or, or whatever, I encourage you to go to the Not By Works website and, and watch that uh, message. You can click on videos, and then under videos it'll say Sunday sermons, and, and you, can, uh, you can find it there. But this morning we come to the final words in the letter. So the last four verses... And uh, well, as I mentioned, we're going to have one more message next week, which will be the 32nd message in this series. And I'm going to summarize and review and sort of reiterate all of the, the key themes. But the writer kind of touches on some of those key themes uh, here. I'm calling this the Crisis Survival Kit. This is a benediction of sorts, and some people might be inclined to sort of just skip over it like it's a perfunctory ending to a letter, but there's nothing perfunctory ever in God's Word. It's all got a meaning, and it's there for uh, a reason. And what he does here in this benediction is kind of punctuate the theme, uh, the themes, plural, that he's talked about throughout the entire letter, trusting God in, in trying uh, times. And he sort of gives some parting thoughts in his benediction, implicit within it, uh, that sort of sum up what he's been saying all along. And I, as I thought about the final words in this epistle, which I've really enjoyed uh, studying through and, and reviewing, uh, I think it's, it's really the perfect letter to, to, for believers today in this changing world, as we talked about last Wednesday. But I thought to myself, what was so important in the mind of the author that he saved it for last? You know, what, what was it he wanted to leave his readers with? And I understand he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what, what were his last words? What are the significance of them? And that got me thinking about famous last words. And so I, I did a little research, and I came up with some examples of some famous last words, some of them poetic, uh, some of them powerful, some of them kind of sad, uh, and one of them even humorous, which I'll mention in a moment. But think about, for example, Emily Dickinson, widely considered one of the greatest American poets of all time. Allegedly, her last words uh, were, I must go in for the fog is rising. Kind of poetic, what, what you might expect from someone like Emily Dickinson. And then Grover Cleveland, who uh, served as the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. Uh, he died in about 1908, if I remember right. But he was the only president in American history to serve two non-consecutive terms in office, although a lot of people think maybe there's another one that's going to have that distinction. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, Grover Cleveland said this, and this is kind of sad. Uh, 
uh, to me. He said on his deathbed, I have tried so hard to do right. Now that sounds commendable, right? And we don't know, I don't know personally whether Grover Cleveland was a believer or not, maybe he was. But in the context of our salvation, if that's what you're pinning your hopes on, uh, you're going to be in trouble. Because it's not what you do that matters, it's who you know. And uh, the theme of our ministry that we've had for 22 years is not by works of righteousness, Titus 3.5, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's nothing we can do that can commend us before a holy God. We've got to receive Christ by faith. So that to me, that one struck me as a little sad. Of course, Sir Winston Churchill's uh, famous last words were uh, in Churchill-esque form. I'm bored with it all. Okay, well... <laughs> Wow. Yeah, wow, I know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, going way back, uh, 16th century, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, she said, made these poignant remarks, all my possessions for a moment of time. Kind of convicting, really. When you think about time is short, the Bible tells us to redeem the times, and uh, when that time comes, uh, you know, what will we be thinking? Uh, this one you may be familiar with. I, I remember this one uh, well. Pistol Pete Maravich, a famous NBA and college player, played for LSU. But um, he was, uh, uh, after he had retired in 1980, I think it was, uh, or 1988. He retired in 1980. In 1988, he was playing a pickup basketball game back at his old alma mater on campus at LSU. And he collapsed. And ultimately died of a heart attack right there, but his words were, right before he died, I feel great. <laughs> wonder how many people think that. Uh, well, uh, Steve Jobs, founder of uh, Apple, uh, his last words, according to his sister, Mona, who was with him at his death, were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And then uh, one final one that I thought was kind of humorous. If, if, if you can speak of humor in the, term, in the context of death, I don't know, maybe it's gallows humor, literally in the case of this next example, I guess. But James W. Rogers, who was from Lubbock, Texas, was uh, arrested for murder in Utah and uh, convicted, and he was put before the firing squad. True story. And uh, as I understand it, this was the last time the firing squad was used. This would have been in 1960. Um, but anyway, so he's about to face execution. They've got him before the firing squad. They said, do you have any last words? And he says, yeah, bring me a bulletproof vest. So, <laughs> I mean, at least he was able to think on his feet, you know. And as I understand the story, they did not oblige. So, uh, but in our, in our study of Hebrews, we've been calling this unshakable faith, trusting God in uh, trying times. And the author closes this letter with some famous last words. And uh, these may well have been the very last words of the author himself, if in fact uh, it was Paul who was executed again in the spring of, of 68. But for sure it's the last words in this letter. So as we come to chapter 13, verses 22 to 25, the last four uh, verses in, in this letter, one of the reasons I chose to, to, to study Hebrews to begin with is because you know, we were facing and still are a pretty serious world-changing crisis of our own. But not only are we facing a crisis as a world, and that hasn't changed, but every one of us individually faces a crisis. Uh, you come here this morning bringing untold burdens, unspoken burdens, uh, that maybe others don't even know about. 
But life, essentially, in this fallen world where Satan is prince, is a series of, of difficulties and, and crises. We're talking about the world crisis right now on Wednesday nights. If you've not watched that uh, message, uh, I encourage you to go back and watch that at notbyworks.org where I expose the great satanic reset. But all of us, as individuals, have certain burdens and trials and difficulties and anxieties. And how do we handle these? What are some tools that we can use for surviving uh, trying times? That's what the author's been talking about all the way through this letter. And that's kind of what I see him uh, expressing, sort of emanating from this closing uh, benediction that a lot of people might kind of uh, skip right over. I see at least a passing reference to five key resources for survival in these final four verses. The first one is this, warning. You know, a warning is in and of itself a resource. Um, we, if you stop and think about it, have a lot of things in life that serve as warnings, right? If you have a smoke detector in your house, that's a pretty key resource for surviving a house fire. If you have, you know, we have the, the FCC warnings, we have uh, alerts that we all get on our phones with weather alerts and things like that. A warning can be a great resource, and the writer summarizes the warning of the whole letter. He sort of sounds the alarm once again. He's, he indicates there's an urgency to what he has written. The crisis they were facing was, was, an, was a, a significant one. It was an urgent one. People were literally dying for their faith. People were literally being told they couldn't gather together in homes to worship the Lord. Um, and there was also an urgency to the way in which the author exhorts his readers to respond. So you have the urgency of the moment, and then you have the urgency of his instruction of how to handle this uh, crisis. You know, a lot of people give up when they face a crisis. They throw in the towel. Um, they, they lose the will to fight. And there's an urgency here that this writer says, look, hang on, hang on. Uh, you know, we've been conditioned through a series of uh, influences, in, in, at least in our Western world, uh, to be more passive, to not react normally and naturally when basic human rights are violated and constitutional rights are violated. We've been beaten down so much that a lot of people just tend to give up hope, and they feel there is no hope. But we cannot ignore the warning signs. The warning is plainly issued in his word. And so the writer begins his benediction with these words. I appeal to you, brethren. Now in English, of course we know the, the New Testament was not written in English. It was written originally in, in Greek. In English, that word appeal is a bit understated as a translation. This isn't just a casual request. There's an urgency behind it. It's a pretty common word in Greek, the word parakaleo. It normally means plead or urge or implore, used over a hundred times in the New Testament. But it really implicit within it is always this sense of urgency. And you sort of don't get that when uh, the writer here, in, it's translated in the New King James anyway, as appeal. But to kind of help you see the the real uh, intrinsic nature of that word, I want to show you at least a couple of other places where it's used. If you remember the story in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus meets uh, a couple of demon-possessed men. Matthew's account mentions two of them. Mark and Luke mention just one at the Gadarenes. 
And this is where he actually has a conversation with the demons. And the demons ask Jesus to throw them into the swine rather than casting them into the abyss. We talked about in our Bible study hour how the abyss is where certain demons have been confined, imprisoned, and are not active today. They're not part of Satan's army to help accomplish his Luciferian agenda. Uh, they're imprisoned, the Bible tells us. But the Bible tells us in Revelation that those demons that are imprisoned in the abyss will be released in that final battle three and a half years prior uh, to the return of Christ, as we've been talking about. But if you go back to that account, it's interesting the word uh, that Matthew uses to describe the request of the demons. He says, so the demons begged him. Same word, parakaleo, just translated begged. They didn't want to go to the abyss. They wanted to still have free reign and wanted to be able to do the things that, that demons uh, do. So let us go into this one. And then we also remember a similar, uh, another use of this word is in Paul, all by Paul, when he tells us about his, when he gets caught up into the third heaven. You remember when he's describing his thorn in the flesh and, and how he really asked the Lord to take it away? We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was, but it was some affliction, some burden, some crisis in his life. And in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, uh, Paul says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. That's pericoleto. It's this urgency. We see it time and again. Again, it's a pretty common word. Uh, another context where it was used with Paul was when Paul received his Macedonian vision, and that Macedonian man pleaded with him to come to Macedonia and share the word. So there was a note of urgency in this benediction. I appeal to you, brethren, to bear with the word of exhortation. The word bear with is one word in, in Greek, and it just means to endure. And perseverance or endurance has been an underlying theme of all 13 chapters of Hebrews. That when facing a tough time, we need to not throw in the towel. We need to endure. Great is your uh, reward. Uh, God is a rewarder of those who trust him. Uh, enduring, unshakable faith. But he says, bear with what? This word of exhortation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the whole letter. Now, you can't see it in English, but the word exhortation has the definite article with it. So if we had a wooden translation, it would be, bear with the word of the exhortation. What exhortation? The one that I've just been uh, talking about. And so you see here, at right at the beginning of his benediction, essentially he's saying, this is important. What you're facing is a crisis, I get it. But what I've been telling you is of great importance. Don't ignore it. And then he actually makes a further appeal here at the end of this first verse when he says, for I have written to you in few words. Now, I mean, as we look at this in English, uh, that might seem kind of strange. Few words, you know. It's kind of like uh, the preacher sort of, you know, defending himself at the end of a, of a long sermon. You know, my sermon wasn't that long, you know, that kind of a thing. But no, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. He, he's being literal. Uh, you have to understand that, as I said, the, the Bible wasn't written originally in English. The original Greek of Hebrew has 4,953 words. That's short. Uh, I looked up the average reading speed of adults today, depending on, you know, where you're at, it can be anywhere from roughly 220 words per minute to 350 words per minute. So you do the math, you can read the entire letter of Hebrews in about 17 minutes. This wasn't a long letter. What he's saying is, 
you know, basically he's almost apologizing. He's saying, although this letter is short, what I'm talking about is vital. Don't let the shortness of my letter mislead you. This is important stuff. Uh, there's an urgency that he's uh, talking about here. The warning has been sounded. So I think that's the first resource in our, in our survival uh, kit. And, and the urgency that he was talking about in the late 60s AD in the first century hasn't changed. There's still an urgency. Uh, in fact, it has intensified. As we've talked about in our midweek uh, service, the Bible teaches in 2 Timothy 3.13 that things will get worse and worse until Christ comes back and takes the throne. And uh, we should expect that. Depravity is a degenerative disease. <laughs> Depravity doesn't get better with time. right? It gets worse with time. And although, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, the manifestations of sin are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so the warning signs are all around us. That's the reason Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, you are sons of the light and sons of the day. You're not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, these are difficult times. Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, was rebuking at one point the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, because, of course, they had long ago departed from the Old Testament biblical model and and it kind of created a law unto themselves where they could pridefully claim to have dotted all their I's and crossed all of their T's and somehow be at the front of the line of the so-called righteous. Yet in reality, as Jesus exposes in his first major sermon, their heart was far from him. And in particular, he rebukes them at one point in Matthew 16 for their inability to discern the signs of the times. He says, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning... Quote, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, he said. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the face of the times. Boy, I hope we don't make the same mistake in this present age. But as we go back to our text, there's a second resource here, and I think that one is joy. Joy. It's interesting that here he is wrapping up this important letter uh, there's a sense of urgency to it. They were facing very difficult times. And yet he finds the time to point out uh, something that brings him joy. Something that brings him joy. He says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free. I mean, to me, that kind of jumps off the page. It's, it's very, very granular, very, very specific in the midst of an otherwise sort of conceptual, philosophic, major issue that everybody was facing. And I think the idea here is we need to remember to rejoice in the little things, to remember the points of joy even in the midst of difficult times. Don't let everything negative overshadow your life. You can become consumed with that. And these are heavy times for us too, 2,000 years later, to be sure. But God is at work. There are lots of reasons to smile. And there, in, in, in the writer's case, he was excited that Timothy, who had apparently been imprisoned for some reason, had been set free. That was exciting. That brought a smile to his face. And, you know, we have a lot uh, to smile about, too. I mean, we could think of a lot of things about our church. I mean, it thrills me to no end to see what God is doing at Plum Creek Chapel. You know, next year will be our 20th anniversary as a church. We've got already some plans made to, to really celebrate. 
And, and this church has been built and steadfastly unwavering on the, the truth of God's Word as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And as we've seen over the last year, we've got tons of new members and new members to the family, if you will, people coming. That brings a smile to my face because it's new friendships, new relationships, people I enjoy getting to know, people we have a common bond with. Um, I'm, uh, there's a lot to be rejoicing about. I, I rejoice that God has blessed this church financially. You know, uh, we did a comparison recently, and first six months of this year to the first six months of last year, we're up 14.2%. That's, that's good. Giving follows vision. That shows that people are excited about what God's doing here. Obviously, you know, it takes resources to, uh, uh, you know, to, to make any ministry tick and, and we need your you know faithful support and uh, and the federal reserve the families that own the private federal reserve need the money that we pay to get the money from from the printing presses but but the lord uses finances as a means of exchange to help us do the work of the ministry and that's exciting uh, you know we were able by god's incredible grace to pay off our mortgage through the generosity of the church body this year so we're now debt-free. We've had some things that really make my heart dance recently, like our God and Country Day celebration, where we invited dignitaries and first responders and elected officials, and we said, look, we want to take politics out of it. We just want to pray for you. We thank you that you're doing an important role in this great country, and we want to know, want you to know we appreciate it, and we want to pray for you. And we had a packed-out tent with, you know, catered barbecue and great music, and it was just a thrilling time. Our creationism conference makes my heart dance. The fact that we're able to live stream and, and uh, share with people all over the place. But in, on a personal level, what is it that brings you joy? Don't become so consumed with your personal trials or the geopolitical world affairs that you forget to smile. Now, we have a lot of occasions to smile around our house because our nearly two-year-old granddaughter lives with us, and that just brings a smile on my face every time I see her, you know. Uh, but hold a baby, sing a song, smile, do something to remember that we have a lot to rejoice about even in these great last days of deception. And that's what uh, I think the writer is talking about here when he just sort of zeroes in. It's like he's writing, but he says, oh, by the way, guess what? Timothy was released. And I feel like he was writing that with a smile. A third resource in our survival kit is hope. You know, uh, Everything that we think about sometimes in the future seems to be gloom and doom. But that's not the record of Scripture. There's a lot of gloom and doom along the way, but there's also a great victory when the Prince of Peace takes the throne and rules in perfect peace and righteousness and judgment. And, we, we, and, and the Bible tells us in Revelation 21, when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. So there are joyous things coming. There are things that we can be hopeful about. And the, the author knew that at any moment, he and his friends could be carted off to the death camps. And yet, he expresses hope in a future possibility. Notice what he says after saying, our brother Timothy has been set free. He's making positive plans for the future. He says, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. What are you hopeful about? You looking forward to anything? That will help, I think, offset just the natural anxiety that any thinking human being these days would have as you look at the trajectory of not only our nation but the world. But you need to stop and think, you know what, what can I look forward to? You know, For us, we're looking forward to our fall travel schedule with our ministry. We'll 
We're doing a conference in Alaska and Minnesota and Dallas, and those are things I'm looking forward to. I mean, I know they may not happen, right? Things can go south in a hurry. We could get locked down again. But I'm not going to let that discourage me. I'm going to be hopeful. King David put it this way in Psalm 23, and who had more daily worries than anybody but King David? Uh, warts and flaws and all. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The Apostle Paul talks about hope in the book of Romans as a driving factor in our lives. He says, we were saved in this hope. See, our salvation is eternal. We get eternal life the moment you place your faith in Christ. It just so happens we're living the first so many years of it until you go the way of all flesh or if the Lord comes back, if we're blessed to have that happen in our lifetime. But either way, the first so many years of our eternal life is in this old body sold under sin, decaying and getting old and, and, and all the fallen world around us. And yet we have a hope. He says, hope that is not seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he doesn't see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hope is a key resource um, that we need to uh, remember. In fact, in Romans 12, toward the end of this letter, uh, the, book, the book of Romans, he connects hope with tribulation. He says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. They're not mutually exclusive. You can be prepared, have a realistic awareness of what's going on and take precautions, as Proverbs 22 tells us, while at the same time smiling. And that's the way believers ought to respond to any crisis, not just major world crises. People ought to wonder, why are they smiling? You know, Well, because we know what lies ahead. In fact, uh, the rapture, the rescuing of the church, like we talked about in our previous uh, session this morning, uh, which res rescues us from the great day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year period prior to the return of Christ, is called the blessed hope. The blessed hope. I've always wondered how people can mistakenly think the church will go through the tribulation. What kind of blessed hope would that, would that be? Why would Paul call the reality that we're going to face untold death, persecution, martyrdom, beheading, seal trumpet, and bold judgments, the wrath of God being poured out, the wrath of Satan being poured out, the greatest earthquake ever, incredible you know, comets hitting the earth, and lo plagues of locusts, and all the things described that are going to happen in that seven years, and Paul calls that the blessed hope? No, the blessed hope is that we're going to be rescued at least before that. Now, doesn't mean we won't face difficulties like I talked about in the first hour. There's some unspeakable martyrdom that's happening right now. In fact, there are more martyrs for the Christian faith today than in any other time in church history. But at least we know we won't have to face the wrath of God. So that's hope. You know, uh, We've got some things that we can look forward to, ultimately the return of Christ. But where is your hope? Don't leave hope tucked away in some storage box right next to your long-term storable food and your supply of batteries <laughs> waiting to be used in the end of the world scenario. Pull it out now. It's part of the survival kit. And even in the midst of all that this writer's been talking about, he's able to point toward a simple little positive eventuality in the future that brings him hope. And then the fourth uh, resource is family is uh, family. You know, the church, the body of Christ, is a household of faith. We are family. We are family. 
Why do I hear Sister Sledge playing in my head? I don't know. But anyway, uh, we need each other. Christians were never meant to live in isolation. Proverbs 18 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all sound judgment. So family is an important part of our uh, resource. And even though we may feel tempted to head for the hills, we need each other. And he closes with this benediction here. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. The word rule there actually is more like lead. In fact, most English translations have the word lead. He's talking about the church leadership. God has given us a divine structure in the church and leaders that help guide and lead and, and so forth and make decisions. But notice he says, greet all the saints. He's, there's a reference here to the fact that we're all in this together. Whatever they may be facing, we're all in it together. He even says, those from Italy greet you. Now, he doesn't mean those believers residing in Italy. In the context, he's talking about Italian believers. That is, those believers who hail from Italy but are with him wherever he was at the moment. It doesn't mean he was in Italy writing this letter. Some people have mistakenly thought that. But what he's saying, what I think this shows, is that the notion of family goes beyond the immediate church family and to include the entire household of the body of Christ, believers, all across the world. And it's helpful in a crisis to remember that you're not alone. That right now, in China or North Korea or other Muslim countries, there are believers who are hiding out, seeking to serve the Lord and raise their children. All the while, fearing that knock on the door, not unlike these first century believers were facing under uh, Nero. And it's going to be important, even more important to remember this notion of family as you know, global attacks on Christianity intensify. We've been so blessed in this great country of ours for 245 years, roughly, uh, that we haven't had you know, Christians being carted off on trains. Um, but God never guarantees us we won't. We take that privilege for granted. Uh, but we need to remember we're all part of the same family. Going back to Romans 8, uh, he talks about how you know, we all cry out to the same Father. We all cry out, Abba, Father, the same Heavenly Father. We're all part of the same family. And then finally, his last sentence here kind of brings it all home. When all, is said, it was all, when all is said and done, it's all about grace. Grace to be reborn in the first place, being saved by grace through faith. God's grace is undeserved riches, undeserved favor. In, in the case of our salvation, undeserved eternal life. That's a gift. Uh, we owed a debt we could never pay. And Jesus Christ, God's only Son, paid a debt He didn't owe on our behalf took our place as our substitute on the cross. That's grace. And, but we need more than just that grace to begin our relationship, to be made alive, to be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. We need grace to live the Christian life and grace to survive tough times. And so he leaves his readers with something he's talked about throughout the letter. Grace. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Going back to that passage we looked at a moment ago in 2 Corinthians, it reminds me of what Paul said. When he wanted that, when he pleaded for that thorn to be removed, the Lord Jesus, that's who the He is there, you see the capital H, said, My grace is sufficient for you. The same grace that saved you from the penalty of sin also 
sustains you day by day, no matter what crisis you may be facing. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul, responding appropriately, says, Therefore, mo most gladly, I will rather boast of my infirmities, because that means the power of Christ is resting upon me. So there's what I call a, a crisis survival kit. Famous last words. The writer wanted his readers to know, and I think God wants us to know by extension, the resources that we have available. And to a greater or lesser degree, all of these, as well as other subsidiary resources, have been addressed fully throughout his letter. But in his parting remarks, his last words, he wants to remind us this is urgent, this is serious, there's a warning being sounded. He wants to remind us that nevertheless we can have joy and hope in the midst of these difficult times. He wants to remind us that we're not alone, we're all in this together, and ultimately God's grace God's grace is sufficient, and we can get through it. So I always like to leave you with a takeaway, and uh, our takeaway this morning will be the author's takeaway, his last words in this epistle. And that is, remember, grace is with you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, just this uh, really fascinating to me uh, benediction to this powerful letter. Thank you that your word never returns void, that it's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And even this uh, closing benediction can really remind us of some, some deep spiritual truths and great important principles that we need to remember. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that today in simple childlike faith they would place their faith in your Son and our Savior as the only hope for eternal life, and that they would become born again and part of the family of God simply because of their faith. And for those who already know you, Father, we just pray that today uh, you would uh, just encourage our faith, strengthen our faith, uh, help us to find those points of joy and to look forward with hope, not just to your return, but also to uh, just the positive things that uh, we know are here and always around us as we await your return. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.